A word of caution. This episode contains depictions of child abuse and murder that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A young man takes an innocent walk into town in the mid-1970s and never returns home. Are the rumors about what happened to him true? A teenager has an argument with her family, leaves her home, and is never seen again. Is there any truth to sightings of her that have popped up over the years? And two young children are subjected to abuse by their stepmother, resulting in a three-year-old boy going missing. The stepmother has never been held accountable for her crimes, and many suspect she knows exactly where the boy is. We also have an update on a Jane Doe from North Carolina who was found off Interstate 85 in 1990. While she has her name back, the name of her killer remains unknown. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 66, Missing South Carolina Kids from the 70s and 80s. The oldest missing persons case in North Charleston, South Carolina, dates back to September 6, 1974. That was the day before Gary Locklear's 16th birthday, and that night he was walking home from a friend's house. The last known sighting of the young man occurred around 11 p.m. when Gary was seen by police on Remount Road, walking barefoot towards a fast food restaurant without a wallet. He never made it home that night. Gary Locklear lived alongside his parents and six siblings in North Charleston, South Carolina. In the Columbia Record, a South Carolina newspaper, his parents described him as well-adjusted and believed their son did not run away from home. In fact, Waiting at home for his birthday was a nearly brand new motorcycle, a gift that would have excited most boys his age. Despite these facts, police started the investigation believing Gary was a runaway. Not much information was known about the night of his disappearance, and the lack of evidence left people, including his mother Elise, to express frustration as it seemed like the ground opened up and swallowed him. Then it closed again without a trace. In 1979, the case was declared inactive. However, investigators reopened the case in 1998 with the rediscovery of an interview conducted with a potential witness on December 6, 1977. The witness went by the name Patsy and claimed that she saw Gary around 3 or 4 p.m. at Folly Beach the afternoon he disappeared. September 6th. Her interview stated she believed someone who was Gary was carried underneath the building that housed a bar on the beach. She also provided a list of potential suspects. They were two older men who were probably in their 30s. The men had made comments regarding Gary that night, including, I'm going to kill that Indian. With this new lead, the North Charleston Police Department called in assistance from Charlotte, North Carolina, and started to search Folly Beach using a ground-penetrating radar equipment. They focused on an area that used to be an establishment called the Seaside Grill. 
According to ABC 15 News out of South Carolina, which featured this case in their investigative series, Bring Them Home, the technology was able to take pictures of the Earth 20 feet below ground. It took nearly 30 hours of work and cost $10,000 per day. The crew found bones, but none were human. The original witness, Patsy, could not be contacted. So the lead ended there. Another theory was that Gary was another victim of the prolific serial killer Donald Peewee Gaskins. Peewee Gaskins had committed crimes since dropping out of school at the age of 11. He had an abusive mother and had suffered years of physical and sexual abuse. He would continue this abuse in his victims. After leaving reform school at 18, Peewee was in and out of jail for attempted murder and rape. The time of Gary's disappearance was during a period in which Peewee was out of jail. He was convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder and reportedly shot, stabbed, drowned, and poisoned more than a dozen people from the 1950s to the 1980s. However, he claims to have murdered over 80 people. He was executed on September 6, 1991, 17 years after Gary Locklear went missing. He was 58 years old. With the body of Gary still missing and no other evidence to possibly add credibility to this theory, this was another possible lead that went cold. Over the years, Gary's parents pursued a number of avenues to try and find answers about their son, including reaching out to a psychic. This is an excerpt from that reading that was published on ABC 15 News. This person was kidnapped and taken away by a man. I feel like this man may be a Texan. A spirit is showing me here and may even live in Texas. In the first spirit, it's saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And I feel like there's probably absolutely no way of giving out revenge of this man at this time. I don't believe that any policeman in this particular area will find this man. Spirit is showing me that this man may have in the pastor in the future be arrested and convicted of some similar crime in Texas. Spirit is saying the best thing is to let this go and declare it as a death and let it go at that and close the case. As of 2023, 49 years after Gary Locklear went missing, investigators have not closed the case. As reported to the South Carolina news station WPDE, the North Charleston Police Department has two unnamed persons of interest and is actively accepting any new information about the case. Gary's parents haven't given up either. His father said it won't end until we know what happened to Gary and where he is. It won't end until someone steps forward and volunteers information or until they plant us in the ground. When Gary Locklear went missing in 1974, he stood about 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighed 116 pounds. He had brown hair and brown eyes, and his race was listed as American Indian. Anyone with information on this case is asked to call the North Charleston Police Department at 843-740-2800. Next, I'd like to talk about a young woman named Christina Porco, who disappeared on November 29, 1986, from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Merrill and Zara had called the sheriff's office to report her missing daughter. Christina was a 16-year-old high school student attending Hilton Head High. 
The Beaufort County Sheriff's Office stated that multiple witnesses reported tense relationships between the Porco family and that an argument with Christina's parents had caused her to storm out of the home on the night of her disappearance. This was the last time her parents would ever hear from her. An unnamed female friend claims that she received a phone call from Christina following the argument in which Christina asked the friend to meet her by the pool of her apartment complex, Woodlake Villas. But when the friend arrived, the only trace of Christina found was a red sweater. That same night, the young woman's father allegedly drove around for hours to look for his daughter, although his location for that period of time never got confirmed. If he was actually out looking, he never found anything. Christina's savings account was not accessed after her disappearance, and she had between $100 and $200 in it at the time she went missing. For four years, the leads went cold on what might have happened to Christina Porco, only reopening in September of 1990, when the National Center for Missing Children received a phone call from a safe house in Appleton, Wisconsin. Hilton Head newspaper, The Island Packet, published an article on October 1, 1990, that contained more details concerning the call, and investigators at the time referred to it as a hot lead. The safe house the call originated from was specifically for girls who had nowhere to go, and the caller was an anonymous 18 to 20-year-old female. There was the voice of another female audible in the background as well, telling the woman on the phone what to say. This second voice was believed to be Christina herself. Yet, once again, she was never found, and the search eventually moved from Wisconsin to Florida. In 1991, an alleged satanic cult, Finders of the Magic Circle, claimed to be keeping Christina captive. This cult allegedly distributed two letters that detailed a plan to sacrifice Christina Porco on May 1st, unless two people being held for murders of five students from Gainesville, Florida, were released. A 22-year-old McDonald's employee was later arrested and charged with writing the threatening letters to public officials. He admitted he didn't know Christina and got all the information about her off missing persons websites. According to the Charlie Project website, investigators have suspected a man named Christopher J. Bellow as a suspect in Christina's disappearance. He is also a suspect in the disappearances of Mary Cushto from Florida, Heather Teague from Kentucky, and Shailene Farrell from Ohio. He pled guilty to the 1991 shooting of Katherine Fetzer from Ohio and was sentenced to 11 to 18 years for that crime. Bellow is known to have been living in South Carolina during the late 1980s and early 1990s. The last news article regarding Christina Porco was released in 2015 from the Beaufort Gazette, detailing a new $2,500 reward from the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office for information about the missing girl. To this day, she has not been found, and the details of her disappearance are no less a mystery than the first night she disappeared. At the time of her disappearance, Christina Porco stood 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighed around 140 pounds. She had brown hair and brown eyes, and sometimes went by the name Chrissy. She was wearing blue jeans, an orange sweatshirt, and white sneakers. Now let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Are you looking to level up your writing or learn a new skill? Whether you focus on nonfiction or are more inclined to creative writing, 
or want to learn how to put together a digital portfolio of your writing, WOW Women on Writing can help. On October 6th, instructor Melanie Faith will be teaching a five-week online course titled Food Writing for Fun and Profit. Each week, students will submit a prose assignment based on an exercise from our class text from constructive and supportive instructor feedback. A variety of writing prompts and tips, both in the texts and in the private class group, will be provided. Topics covered will include what exactly is food writing, on food and blogging, going solo as a freelance writer, crafting memoir and nonfiction, how to get your book published, bringing home the bacon, and more. Join WOW and other members for this cuisine-filled course. Another fun class starting October 16th is Writing Fitness and Sports Stories by Dr. Anne Grenewald. I'm currently working on a proposal to teach a webinar on true crime writing, so stay tuned for that. If you want to learn more about any of these fun and affordable online classes over at WOW Women on Writing, visit wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. Next, let's talk about SkinX Erin. Listen, we all want to look our best. We're all trying to eat all the vegetables, drink all the water, and get all the sleep. Sometimes it's hard. But you know what can help you look refreshed, younger, and like you might actually like your life? That would be the incomparable products offered by SkinX Erin. I swear by them, and I'm constantly surprising people when I tell them my age, so hear me out. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin, and you can use it alongside your regular face wash. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalane Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. It's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamins E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxerin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. And now, let's get back to the show. On March 5, 1987, three-year-old Paul Leonard Baker was reported missing in Beaufort, South Carolina by his stepmother, Susan Elizabeth Baker. It's been decades since his disappearance, and he's never been found. His stepmother, however, is now serving time in prison for her involvement in an unrelated case. Prior to his disappearance, Paul's sister Nina, just six years old at the time, returned home from school around 11 a.m. Paul had been sick days before his disappearance. When she came home, Susan told Nina Paul was feeling better and playing in the backyard. According to the Charlie Project website, Nina didn't remember seeing Paul or hearing his voice at all on the day he disappeared. Soon after Nina came home, she heard Susan screaming at Paul to take a nap. Nina fell asleep herself, and when she woke up, found out from Susan that her brother was missing. According to the Buford Gazette, Susan told authorities she put him down for a nap around 11 a.m. She stated that she had fallen asleep as well. When she woke up around 12.30 or 1.30 p.m., it was to a call from Paul's father and her husband, James Baker. He claimed to have received a call saying that a woman had Paul and he was okay. When Susan went to look for Paul, he was gone. That's when she reported him missing. 
Authorities believed that Susan was under the influence of drugs and alcohol when Paul disappeared. James accused Paul's biological mother, Linda Soloranzo, of making the phone call and kidnapping their child. However, law enforcement determined she had nothing to do with her son's disappearance. She wasn't even in the state at the time he went missing. Eight days after Paul's disappearance, Susan Baker took a polygraph test, but the results were inconclusive. She admitted she was stressed having to take care of the children and wanted them to return to their mother. Four days later, James took a polygraph test and failed. However, he did tell investigators that Susan was often too harsh with how she disciplined the children. According to the Charlie Project website, James suggested that Susan killed his son Paul and threw his body in the Battery Creek. He thought Nina, his daughter, may be in danger from her stepmother. The next day, James told authorities he changed his mind, no longer believing his wife killed his son. On March 24th, authorities searched the Baker home and discovered blood spatter. They were sent away for analysis, but the Charlie Project stated that the authorities weren't certain what happened to the evidence. Eighteen days after Paul's disappearance, James Baker turned his daughter Nina over to authorities, fearing for her safety, according to the Buford Gazette. While in their custody, authorities discovered Nina had broken bones and other injuries. According to Florence Morning News, the Sheriff's Department Captain John Kistler said that a doctor discovered that Nina had a broken hand and ulcerated sores on her back where she had been whipped. Kistler stated the child's hand had been broken several weeks prior and she never received medical attention. Nina told them that Susan beat her with a stick and locked her in a closet for long periods with a trash can for a toilet. She stated that Paul was abused as well by Susan, who whipped him when he wet his bed and forced him to stand in the corner for hours at a time. Susan was charged with assault and battery on Nina with intent to kill, but pled guilty to a reduced charge of assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but a judge named Luke Brown suspended the sentence, instructing her not to see the child without further order from the court. Susan only served 80 days in jail. In a statement prepared by Susan Cato of Child Abuse Prevention Association, she said, The Child Abuse Prevention Association feels that due to the severity of the abuse, the suspension of the sentence handed down by Judge Luke Brown was extremely lenient. Susan Baker had asked for leniency due to her own experience of childhood abuse. However, as Susan Cato said, this clearly demonstrates the cycle of a child abuse continuing. According to an article in The Herald, Susan and James Baker moved to Florida upon her release. After the discovery of the abuse, Nina spent time in foster care and was eventually placed with her maternal grandmother, Linda Lambert, who raised her. Her mother, Linda Solorzano, attempted to win custody of her. However, the Department of Social Services asked for all parties involved to be investigated, including Nina's biological mother, Linda, Nina's father, James Baker, and stepmother, Susan Baker. Nina returned to live with her mother in 1992. According to published reports, she remains estranged from her father and hasn't heard from him in decades. Nina is now married and has children of her own. She works as a nurse. Although she hopes to have a relationship with her father one day, 
she affirms he will never see her children. In an ironic and cruel twist, Nina couldn't escape psychological abuse from Susan Baker, her stepmother. For decades, Nina was tormented with cards, letters, and gifts from Susan. At one point, Susan wrote her to say that her grandmother never wanted her. However, justice remains to be Nina's goal, although it's not going to be enough. In an article from the Beaufort Gazette, Nina said that nothing can ever make up for what she did to me and my brother. If she spent her entire life in jail for my brother's death, it wouldn't make up for what she did. In 2000, the authorities reopened the investigation and James and Susan Baker were charged with assault and battery in Paul's disappearance. A grand jury did not indict either of them and only indicted Susan for child neglect. Authorities did not pursue the charges because of the minimal amount of time that Susan would spend in prison. In 2003, charges were brought around again, but were later dropped. That's when Paul's case went cold. It wasn't until November 2009 that Susan's name came up again. This time, she was linked to another missing child case based out of Florida. Seven-month-old Shannon Lee Dedrick disappeared from her Chipley, Florida home. Susan was her babysitter and the half-sister to Shannon's father, James Russell Rusty Dedrick Jr. When investigators arrived at the child's home, they found her mother, Christina Mercer, sitting in a rocking chair, smoking. According to the Tallahassee Democrat, she didn't appear distraught as other mothers would be. The investigators at the time feared her to be dead when they searched the parents' home. Christina was known to be bipolar, and she often forgot to take her medication. While in her home, police heard her saying, maybe I put the baby in the mailbox, or maybe I put her in a pile of leaves. Shannon was found five days later inside of a chest under the bed in Susan's home on Orange Hill Road in Chipley. The infant was alive and found in relatively good health, wearing only an overflowing diaper. According to the Tallahassee Democrat, the only signs of injury on Shannon were rashes. While Christina Mercer claimed someone took the child in the middle of the night, Susan Baker claimed that Mercer gave her the child permanently. Susan's husband, James Baker, claimed she acted as if she had nothing to do with the disappearance. He even said at some point she told him she wanted to take Shannon's parents out back and beat them until they told her what happened. Two months before Shannon's disappearance, Susan Baker had called Child Protective Services and even wrote to the Florida governor saying Shannon's parents were drug users and she was concerned for the baby's safety. Authorities charged Susan Baker with neglect of a child with aggravated circumstances and interference of child custody. Christina Lynn Mercer, Shannon's mother, was charged with interference of child custody, desertion of a child, and several other charges. To the jurors, Susan admitted putting the baby in the box. She claimed Christina, the child's biological mother, had voluntarily given the baby to her to keep permanently, but then reported her missing 10 hours afterward. During the trial, Shannon's mother, Christina, pled the fifth, refusing to answer questions because they may incriminate her. Susan was convicted of three felony charges in October 2010 and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. She and James Baker got divorced in the aftermath of Shannon's kidnapping. Although James Baker was detained by police after the infant was found, 
he was since released without charge. He said he never knew the baby was being hidden in his house. In October 2010, Christina, Shannon's mother, pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge of providing false information and sentenced to 364 days in jail. She received credit for time served and was immediately released. Authorities could not prove that Christina made a false 911 call and could not prove that she gave her infant daughter to Susan. Custodial interference was not proven, and those charges were dropped. Shannon was removed from her parents' care and placed into a foster home after the kidnapping. She lives with relatives out of the state. Her father surrendered his rights, and her mother isn't allowed to have contact. At the time of Shannon's kidnapping, Beaufort County Sheriff P.J. Tanner, who was a deputy in 1987, told the Herald in 2010 that they had high hopes this investigation would lead to more information about Paul's whereabouts or other details about his disappearance. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. While Paul's decades-long disappearance received some attention during Shannon's kidnapping, his whereabouts still remain unknown. At the 12-week point of Paul having gone missing, Captain John Kistler of the Beaufort County Sheriff's Department told the Beaufort Gazette that the search won't end until the boy is found. His words resonate now, just as they did in 1987. We won't ever officially call it off. We'll always go look. And finally, I want to talk about an update in a Jane Doe case I first discussed in episode 27, Unidentified People in the Carolinas. The victim has been known for years as New Hope Jane Doe. A cleanup crew found the remains of a young woman on Interstate 40 in Orange County in North Carolina on September 19, 1990. The girl was found down an embankment just east of the exit onto New Hope Church Road in Hillsboro. She was estimated to be younger than 20 years old at the time of her death. She stood around 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighed around 120 pounds. She had shoulder-length brown hair that had been frosted and dyed strawberry blonde. Her eye color was unknown. The sweatshirt she was found in was the most mysterious clue to the young woman's identity. It was pink, featuring three cartoon bunnies, two riding bicycles, and one on a unicycle. When found, the young woman was unclothed from the waist down. She wasn't wearing shoes, but her socks were clean, indicating that her shoes must have been removed and that she was taken from a vehicle before being placed in the embankment. She had been strangled and left on the side of the interstate about a week prior to being discovered by the cleanup crew. Some people thought they may have seen the young woman in the area at a Ramada Inn on Interstate 85 near the Burlington, North Carolina area, walking or asking for money or a ride, but that, that has never been confirmed for sure. On Wednesday, September 27, 2023, investigators with the Orange County Sheriff's Office notified the public of the young woman's name. She was 20-year-old Lisa Coburn Kessler, who spent most of her life in Jackson County, Georgia. Authorities believe Lisa was strangled about a week before being found off that exit ramp. Over the years, they never stopped working on this case, interviewing potential witnesses, pursuing leads, going over missing person records, and even creating a bust of the victim using forensic facial reconstruction techniques to model her skull. According to an article that ran on WRAL in June of 2020, investigator Dylan Hendricks sent a degraded hair fragment to Astria Forensics for DNA extraction. 
Once they returned the profile, he asked forensic genealogist Leslie Kaufman to assist with the case. She began working to identify potential family members using genealogy databases. She identified people believed to be paternal cousins, and investigators began conducting interviews. That is when authorities learned of a relative named Lisa Kessler that no one had heard from in at least three decades. They obtained DNA from a suspected maternal relative. A medical examiner specialist in the office of the chief medical examiner updated NamUs and amended the young woman's death certificate, providing Lisa's correct name and demographic information. They are still working to identify who may have been Lisa Coburn Kessler's killer. If you have any information on this case, contact Investigator Hendricks at the Orange County Sheriff's Office at 919-245-2951. One more thing as we wrap up. Each October, I like to put together an episode in the spirit of Halloween that features stories of people who have experienced paranormal events or places that have a haunted history. This year, I'd love to hear from the listeners of this podcast. Have you ever lived in a place you thought was haunted? I personally am convinced that an apartment I lived in after college was haunted. It had originally served as the main VA hospital in Asheville. Do you have an experience that was hard to explain? Were you one of the teenagers who went up to Helen's Bridge in Asheville, hoping to catch sight of the ghost? You can email me your stories at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com and bonus points if they tie to North and South Carolina somehow. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much to those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. I served as the research coordinator for this episode. A huge thanks to our intern, Aaron Settlemeyer, who wrote the segments on Gary Locklear and Christina Porco, and to freelance writer Nicole Piles for her work on the Paul Baker story. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and classes they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.